0: We all have heroes of all different kinds, whether it's football heroes or whatever. I've got my football heroes, probably too old for most of you to remember, um, Kenny Dalglish being to the forefront. But I've got three great Christian heroes, John Calvin, the 16th century Genevan reformer, I remember as a young Christian reading two biographies of Calvin and being gripped by them. Ended up doing my honors dissertation, my first degree on John Calvin. I, I, I just was so taken with his courage, his faithfulness, his delight in the Savior. And he's, from that time, been my go to man. If ever I'm thinking about something and I want to find out more about it, Um, I've got most of Calvin's 59 volumes so I can find somewhere. Calvin's my real uh, historical Christian hero. But then I've got a second hero. 19th century Scottish Presbyterian minister called William Chalmers Burns. If you've never heard of William Chalmers Burns, shame on you. He was one of the great, great men of the 19th century. 1848, he went to China as a missionary. Returned home once, died in 1868, Nanking. Son of the manse, born in 1815. His life is just gripping. If you want to be gripped by a missionary biography, read the life of William Chambers Burns. He's my second hero. But I've got a third hero, a little more modern. His name is John Murray, who was born in Bonner Bridge, not far from here, in 1898. Why is he one of my heroes? Well, as a very young Christian, I stumbled across literally a little book that Murray wrote called Redemption Accomplished and Applied. I'd been a Christian for maybe three years or so, I was just feeling my way forward, sort of finding my way as a young Christian in university, wondering how can I be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. And I read this book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, and it was like an electric shock to me. It blew the socks off me. I never knew the gospel was so glorious, so profound, so rich, so deep. And from that time on, I began to read whatever John Murray had written. So I've got, I think, all of John Murray's writings. And the reason why I mention him is because about 30 years or so ago, John and I and the children were up north on holiday. We were living in New Mills at the time in Ayrshire. And I thought, we must go to Bonner Bridge, uh, to Bad Bay, and to try and find out if we can see the grave of John Murray. He had gone to America. Uh, He was an eminent biblical theologian. Uh, He was held in the highest esteem. Um, People looked up to him. Even today, Sinclair Ferguson would say John Murray, along with John Calvin, shaped his Christian life. And we traveled up to Bonner Bridge, and we were directed to the graveyard outside the little town. And eventually found the grave of John Murray. So here is this man who I thought was just the height of Christian grace and Christian insight and profound teaching. Uh, There isn't a sentence of John Murray's that doesn't leave you thinking, my, how wonderful the gospel is. And we found his little grave. And all that was on it was these words. John Murray, born 1898, died 1975. And below it, a text. Nothing about his eminence. He taught at Princeton Seminary. He taught at Westminster Theological Seminary. He wrote this book. He wrote that book. Nothing. There was a text. Matthew 1, verse 21. He will save his people from their sins. That's what John Murray wanted the world to know about him. He didn't want the world to know about his eminence. He didn't want the world to know that he was considered perhaps the greatest biblical theologian of the age. He wanted people to know about Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. And I want to reflect with you just for a short time this morning on these very familiar words that many of you will have read dozens and dozens of times. I want to think with you about these words. But first of all, I want to put them in their wider biblical context. As I was saying to the children, God made a promise way, way, way back in history. It was a significant promise because it was a promise given in the wake of Adam's rebellion against God. Adam had turned his back on God. God had created Adam. He'd given him life. Made him the representative head of the whole creation. God had blessed him. He'd put him in this beautiful garden. God (coughs) had actually given Adam headship over the whole creation. He's saying, Adam, the whole creation is before you. Go and enjoy it. But here's a test, Adam. See that tree over there? Don't take its fruit. It wasn't a magical tree. It was a tree. A tree. God was giving Adam a test. He was saying to him, the whole of creation is before you. Enjoy it. But I want to test your obedience, Adam. Here's one little thing. See that little tree over there. Don't take its fruit. Would Adam obey God? No. Like his wife Eve, he... He saw the fruit, and the fruit looked good. Fruit's nice. Looked pleasing. Yeah. I'll just take it. Sin entered the world through one man. Corruption, death, misery, sadness, a broken relationship with God. And then God made a promise. Genesis 3.15 The Lord God said in the wake of the tragedy I'm not going to give up on my creation I'm going to make a promise and here's my promise one day someone from the seed of woman will come and he will crush the serpent's head Satan who had tempted them into disobedience One day I'm going to send a redeemer, a saviour, a conqueror, a serpent crusher. I'm going to do it. Ever since that first promise, it's the first gospel sermon in the Bible. And it's about Jesus. Ever since that first promise, people would have been waiting. The years would pass. The decades would pass. The centuries would pass. Where's this seed of the woman, who's going to crush the serpent, who's going to bring hope, who's going to reconcile us back to God? Has has God given up on us? Has God forgotten? And then, it happened. Out of the blue. When no one was expecting it. Well perhaps that's not quite right. You've got these three mysterious strangers we call the wise men from the east. How did did they know? No idea. No idea. Some suggestions but we really don't know. And an angel of the Lord. Appears to Joseph in a dream. And Joseph's got a problem. He's betrothed to Mary. They've not had sexual relations together, but she's pregnant. Now, the ancient world might be ancient, but the new basic biology. Virgins don't get pregnant. But she is. Joseph's thinking, well, if it isn't me, who is it? And he's thinking, well, I don't want to embarrass her. I don't want to shame her publicly. I'll get a quiet annulment. And an angel appears. The Bible's very upfront about the supernatural. Doesn't stop to say anything. Just says, an angel appeared. Says to Joseph, It's okay. It's okay, Joseph. Nobody else is involved. This seed of the woman is from the Holy Spirit. And you will call his name Jesus. Why? The name tells you why. Jehoshua, the Lord saves, because he's the long-promised one. He will save his people from their sins. I want to notice three things with you, just very simply this morning. Number one, in these words, God's long promised announcement that he would send a saviour is being fulfilled. He made the promise thousands of years before. And you could imagine if someone makes you a promise, like I made to the little girl in New Mills. I can still remember uh, making it, and I still remember her parents saying to me the next week, "You forgot your promise." When you make a promise, you people expect you to fulfil it. Maybe not the next day or the next week, maybe even not the next month, but they expect you to fulfil it. And here are people and they're waiting millennia. And surely you don't need much imagination to think that they would talk to each other. It, Has God forgotten? Has he given up on us? Have we been so bad that God has just said, forget it? But God is not a man that he should lie. Not one promise from his lips will fall to the ground. Every promise God has ever made he keeps because of who he is. As I said to the children, God would ungod himself, which he cannot do, for he is who he is. But he would ungod himself if he didn't keep his promise because God is truth. I think of other promises that God makes to us in the Bible. I will never leave you nor forsake you. There are times when it feels God is nowhere, that he's absconded. Martin Luther uh, would speak of God as deus absconditus, the God who's just abandoned us. He's absconded. But God is not a man that he should lie. Lord, where are you? I'm here. I've promised I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Whether you feel his presence is neither here nor there. The certainty lies in the character of the one who made the promise. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Or think of the the opening words of Psalm 46 that we'll sing in a little time. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in time of trouble. That's what he is. Are you in a time of trouble this morning? God is a present help to those who trust in him. He he lays his life on the line, as it were. He, He says, I will ungod myself if I do not keep that promise. I'm a very present help. You can count on me. My word is my bond. Or think of Jesus' words to his disciples as he begins to tell them that he will soon leave them. That the cross is his destiny. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, would I have told you? I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house. When he says there are many mansions or many rooms, he's saying, in my Father's house... There's room for everyone who puts their trust in me. It's a promise. You don't need to doubt it. Because the Son of God is not a man that he should lie. And so what we have here is God finally fulfilling his promise to send a Savior. And that's why it's so important to to note the promises God makes in his word. to, To note them and to say, Lord... You promised that, do it. You know what prayer essentially is? Prayer is pleading the promises of God. Prayer is saying, Lord, you promised this, do it. That's why we need to fill our minds and hearts with the promises of God. So here you have a promise now fulfilled but secondly notice god's long promised savior is being announced he's fulfilling his promise but he's announcing who the savior is she will bear a son you will call his name jesus jehoshua the lord saves for he will save his people from their sins now can you imagine throughout history Um, believing men and women, wondering who this serpent crusher, who this, this conqueror of Satan, who this savior and deliverer is going to be. He must be powerful. He must be mighty. He must be magnificent. He must be someone that everything and everyone will tremble before. And in the obscurity of a little... Tiny place called Bethlehem. I'd been there once. Spent two months in Israel as a student. Joe and I went back on honeymoon. Bethlehem's nothing to write home about. <laughs> in Bethlehem, to a couple, to Mary, obscure unknowns. This is the serpent crusher. Are you serious? This, this seed of the woman is going to be the savior of the world, is going to crush the head of Satan. This little bundle of humanity who's puking. Yes. One of the great features of the Bible is how God acts so unexpectedly and surprisingly. He takes people by surprise. Who would have thought that the saviour of the world, God the Son, would be born so obscurely because he had come to identify with the weakest and the lowest and the poorest and the meanest. He hasn't come for the elite, He's come for everyone and anyone who have him. And he identifies with the weakest and the poorest and the neediest. He's so obscure that the Bible tells us he was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. One of Jesus' disciples, a man called Philip, went and found a friend of his called Nathanael. John chapter 1 says, Nathanael, we've found the Messiah, the Saviour. He's come at last. Oh, says Nathanael, where is he from? He's from Nazareth. They'd gone back to where Mary and Joseph had come from, from Nazareth. And Nathaniel said, no, <laughs> not Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, why is he saying that? Well, if you know your Bibles at all, think of the beginning of Isaiah chapter 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Galilee, where Nazareth was, of the Gentiles. Nazareth belonged to that part in the north of Israel that had been invaded by successive powers, successive armies, it was the most irreligious part of the country. It was where religion was at a low ebb. It, it was where truth and righteousness had been trampled into the dirt. If you were from Nazareth, it was a bit like saying you were from the boondocks. And that's the background To the Savior of the world. God sent not another prophet to point the way, He sent His Son to be the way. You will call His name Jesus. God saves. That's what Christmas is all about it's about a long-promised saviour arriving to do what only he would be able to do. Give to God the obedience we could never give. Die the sin-atoning death we could never die and through faith in him be reconciled to God. But then the third thing here, Not only do we see a promise being fulfilled, a a savior being announced, we read of a salvation being accomplished. I want you to notice this and I want you to take this seriously and carefully. He will save his people from their sins. Jesus Christ did not come to make people salvable. He did not come to make salvation possible. He came to accomplish salvation. Remember John Murray's book, Redemption, accomplished and applied. He will save his people. His death on the cross did not create the possibility of salvation. It ensured the certainty of salvation. He will save his people from their sins. Remember our Lord's almost his last words on the cross, it is finished. One word in Greek, tetelestai, it is finished. What was finished? The work he had came to do. The work of saving sinners. It is finished. It is finished. He paid in full the price of our sin. He accomplished redemption through his own bloodshed on the cross. Then maybe you're sitting thinking, well, but how do I know he did it for me? Ah, There's an easy answer to that, isn't there? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. What he did, he did for everyone who would ever throughout history put their hope and trust alone in him. He didn't come to make us salvable, to make salvation a a possibility. We don't complete the work of Christ. We receive the work of Christ. Or better, we receive Christ and all that he accomplished. So what can we say just as we close about these words? Well, first and obviously, take this with you. God can be trusted to keep his promises. Read the Bible. Note the promises. Plead the promises. I will be your God. You will be my people. Your children. Mark them with the mark of belonging. Plead the promises of God He's a covenant-keeping, covenant-making God. Plead his promises. Hold God, Lord. You commanded them to receive the sign of your belonging. Make them yours. Secondly, we should notice here that God desires everyone to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Why did God send his son into the world? Let me just quote one verse, John 3, verse 17. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God sent his son that everyone, everywhere, might come to him. There's a very moving passage in the Bible where we read of God holding out his hands all the day long. Now, if I were to stand here for the next... I don't know how long, with my hands held like this. I'm not sure how long I could do this for. Uh, Half an hour? An hour? Certainly couldn't do it for a day. What a remarkable picture. God holds out his hands all the day long. Why is he doing that? Because he's pleading with everyone everywhere to come to him. Come to me. Come to me. I'll never turn you away. I'll never turn you away. Come to me through my son who has come to make atonement for sin. And the third thing we can take away is simply this. That in Jesus Christ, God gives to us himself. We talk about salvation We talk too much about salvation and too little about Jesus Christ, the Savior. Salvation isn't a thing. It's a person. It's a person. I would guess not many of you know much Hebrew. Maybe one or two of you do and would put me to shame. You're thinking, oh, right, he knows a wee bit, maybe more than me. But I guess all of you know this one word in Hebrew. Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. It's great, isn't it? God with us. It's not enough. Emmanuel isn't enough. It's not enough for God to be with us I want God to be my God I want him to be our God and so there are two even better words than Emmanuel Emmanuel God with us Elohenu, God for us and the best of all Eli my God Martin Luther once said the Christian faith is all about personal pronouns. Can you say this morning, my God, I am my beloved's, and he is mine, he's mine. Through faith in Jesus Christ, through self-abandoning trust in God's son. So when you sing about Emmanuel, that's great. Emmanuel it's glorious what about Elohenu, our God and best of all Eli my God that's why Jesus Christ came so that the living God could be your God and my God Amen. A promise fulfilled. Well, we close our service of worship this morning.